You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse, and brilliant philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Amir Jama. Amir is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at St. Lawrence University and also a novelist. His primary research interests are in ethics, aesthetics, and Africana philosophy. Today, we talk philosophy and literature. Hi, Amir, and welcome to the Yami Podcast. Hey, Maisha. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Amir, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, sort of by accident. So I was an undergrad, and I um, had never taken a philosophy class. And a friend of mine just encouraged me to take a course with a particular professor. And I enjoyed it. You know, we read the classics, Plato, Descartes, all that stuff. But the thing that really hooked me was, at some point in the course, we read Fanon. And you know, we read some black skin, white masks. And and that really surprised me as, wow, this could be philosophy. You know? So up until that point, I had always thought of philosophy as, you know, just a parade of dead white men. And suddenly, philosophy could be relevant to my life. And that really struck me. So I basically, like, followed this professor and took all of her courses. And um, um, but at some point, she, you know, encouraged me to take courses with other professors. And at that point, I had enough you know, eventually, just sort of by accident, I had enough credits for a major, and I was like, "Wow, okay, well, I guess that's what I'll be." Now, there's, you know, we have statistics of this that uh, mostly people of color, um, particularly black women and men in philosophy, do work in social and political specifically. And you did your dissertation in philosophy of literature. So, how did you, from reading Fanon, right, to going into philosophy of literature, how did that transition happen? Right, yeah, that's um, yeah, a good question. Well, so I've always enjoyed reading. You know, I read lot, read lots of novels. Even um, this was just sort of outside of philosophy. And you know, the reason why I enjoyed it was because I thought that these were texts and spaces where interesting questions that were relevant to my life were being engaged, and, and questions that were being raised there. Um, so I guess in some ways I just had this, you know, um, intuitive um, sense that these were the texts that were philosophically relevant to me. Okay. And uh, and uh, at one point after, I mean, I didn't plan to go to graduate school in philosophy. I, I just, you know, in undergrad it was sort of just an interest of mine. Um, but then afterwards, at some point I decided I wanted to write a write a novel, <laughs> and. Um, in trying to do it, I thought, you know, I'm not yet, I, I'm missing something. It wasn't good enough. And it wasn't that I didn't think I, you know, could write, but it was something about the ideas weren't um, grounded enough. There wasn't enough context for the ideas that I wanted to engage. And then I said, well, maybe I just want to do more graduate school work. So I just did a master's. Um, and then eventually I was like, well, no, this needs more serious study. And um, I went on to, you know, go to graduate school for a doctorate. Um, 
So that's interesting. So let, let me get this straight. So you were writing a novel, and you felt yeah. that the content wasn't strong enough. It, li- it needed a little bit more philosophical content. So you decided to get a master's, and that wasn't sufficient, <laughs> and so you decided to get a PhD. That's sort of one way to think of the narrative. I mean, sort of looking back on it, you know, I don't know if it was so premeditated, you know, but that's sort of how it happened, you know. I mean, I thought, well, do I want to go and get an MFA in creative writing and, you know, have this pressure to write? But I didn't think that that would be enough. I didn't think that would be the right kind of uh, training that I wanted. You know, I really wanted to, you know, a space where I could critically engage the ideas that I wanted to convey in this literary form and I said at that point I was I mean I didn't have very philosophical reasons very well articulated reasons for thinking the literary form was definitely the way I wanted to express these ideas but so I mean I sort of had taken it for granted at that point that literature was philosophy um, except not I wouldn't have phrased it in those terms at that time um, but then I decided yeah so I decided that I had to I wanted to read more that's what I needed to do I need to read more and I wanted to read more um, figures who had asked these same questions and see how they had tackled them. Okay. So let's talk a little yeah. bit more about, about philosophy of literature. What kinds of questions do philosophy of literature attempt to address? Yeah, I mean, philosophy of literature isn't exactly a traditional, like a classic discipline, um, subfield of philosophy. It's really under aesthetics, right? But... I guess, um, which aesthetics is, you know, asking questions about kinds of knowledge can be acquired through, through sense perception, right? Um, or just through experience in general. And sort of the classic questions that emerge out of that are, you know, what is beauty? Um, what is art is one of the classic questions for, um, that come out of aesthetics. But then philosophy, but also like what is style and, you know, what is sort of appearance? What is the value of appearance? So then when you get to, writing in particular, you know, you have this sort of division between like, how does the text appear? And then what does it say? So aesthetics traditionally looks at, well, you know, how it appears is really the realm of art and literature. And then what it says is the realm of philosophy and like thought and reason. So the thing that I'm interested in in looking at philosophy and literature is sort of trying to break down that distinction and thinking that, well, how we say, how we say something affects what it says. Okay, and uh, you know you hear this all the time. You know when uh, you know uh, when you talk to children or your parents give you advice, whatnot. You know that you say you're sorry, and it sounds like you didn't mean it, right? It's like, oh, sorry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you you know you say say it like you mean it, and because if you how you say it matters, it actually can communicate some content. So taking sort of you know that's sort of like a an analogy for thinking about you know I, what I think of as writing in general. And so the literature, so literature so when I look at philosophy literature, I think, well, there's something about the way that um, literature communicates this content that actually also is communicating something in addition to what it's saying. Hmm. And then if you look at philosophy in general, you know, the, the, you know, the, opposite, the, convert, the flip side of that argument is that, well, the way that philosophy traditionally communicates its ideas also communicates something. So, like the, the decision to use, I mean, it's sort of an argument that Nussbaum makes in um, in her work uh, "Loves Knowledge." She starts off by say, uh, saying that you know the, the 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 choice to write a drama or a novel or to write an essay um, communicates something already that 
affects what it is that we're going to say using this form. And, and maybe there are some things that we can't say using one form or the other or without, without there being sort of a, 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 an implicit contradiction. Yeah. So it would appear that, that, that literature and philosophy are, are worlds apart. How, how do you see them? So I see them as basically um, two different, I see them sort of rather continuous. You know, um, I think that um, it's sort of a false distinction to look at one as just art and the other as, you know, the work of reason and theory. Um, so the way that I like to think of them is these are basically two ways to ask questions and to um, to engage ideas and um, and sort of philosophy historically has sort of you know they like uh, you know we see like with you know with in ancient Greece right with Plato where this sort of distinction is collapsed you know where the all of the dialogues are unmistakably literary works as we move through the history of philosophy. I mean, a lot of figures do write in these nar in narrative forms or literary forms, using literary forms. But um, in the 20th century, we've sort of made this sharp distinction between them. I think it's sort of a, just a matter of convention that that's happened, and it's sort of done a disservice to philosophy. Okay. So, like, so like the distinction we make is um, greater than the distinction actually is. You know, um, to use a rather cryptic way of putting it. Um, and I think that traditional philosophy, traditional ways of writing, can learn things from literary forms that would redeem it, you know, in, in many ways. You know, um, it would make it better. Um, it would bring philosophy back to, I think, what it should be doing, which is sort of helping us to live our lives and thinking about real problems. Is literature philosophy? I think so. I think definitely. It's not all good philosophy. <laughs> okay. Um, in the same way that I don't think all philosophy is good philosophy. So for the same reasons, I think literature is definitely philosophy. Um, that philosophy is philosophy. Um, I think a lot of times when literature is not good philosophy, it's because maybe the writers don't think of what they're doing as a philosophical project. But sort of in spite of themselves, they are engaging in a philosophical project. And that's part of, I think, sort of the general convention that literature is not philosophy. So maybe there are some writers who are like, oh, I'm just out to tell a good story, and I'm not engaged, I'm not trying to understand the world, but I don't think that there's any real, there isn't a good way, there isn't a way to tell a story, a, a believable story about the world that doesn't also say something about the world in a, in a, in a way that I think is similar to what philosophy does. What is it about black literature that makes it so philosophically rich? Right, right. Excellent question. Right. Well, black literature and black philosophy in general. So I think black. Well, the short answer is that I think black literature is a is the venue where a lot of black philosophy has taken place. It's sort of been relegated to that space. So you know, historically, you know, black figures have sort of been excluded from philosophy for a number of reasons. Part, one of the reasons is just you know the history of racism, and they haven't been. You know, it's assumed that. Black thinkers aren't really thinking, you know, they're just experiencing. But on the other hand, the, the question of identity, like what does it mean to be black? We you know which is sort of a question that 
a lot of black literature has engaged. I mean, that question, like, what does it, what does it mean to be anyone, to be, you know, to, to be a particular kind of person? That is a question that starts from a very particular place. It starts from our experiences. Hmm. And a lot, there's a long history of philosophy where sort of has, you know, makes experience a dirty word, you know, it says, like, if it's just, if it's just your experience or it makes it sort of like, says that it, it just becomes just, you know, just a, it's just fault into relativism where it's just your experience, you know? Yeah. But in fact, there are a lot of questions that, um, really begin with our experiences, with each of our experiences and the black experience, particularly the, you know, the black experience of, of racism, you know, of, of confronting violence and oppression and domination. And, you know, these are things that begin with experience and it requires sort of a story to even explain why uh, to explain the, sort of the contradictions and the injustices and just the things that don't make sense, you know, or even why these are even questions. So, you know, like something happens and we say, like, you know, the first question we ask is just like, well, what, why, why did that happen? And then we try to make sense of it. And then, that, you know, that's uh, the starting place of, of a whole philosophical, you know, line of inquiry. You know, why did this happen? Um, and, there's a particular set of questions that I think are unique to the black experience before historical reasons. And that's where black literature, I think, makes this huge contribution. Um, and, uh, and I think that now, you know, we've sort of, we've, there's been a, a lot of, um, um, there have been a lot of, you know, philosophical figures who have taken that, that question up as, like, in traditional philosophical forms. So it's not to say that, you know, literature is the only place that you can raise these questions or the only manner, but the place where those questions emerge, and sometimes I think the best place to engage them is sort of literary form. And, but historically, black literature has been doing that work. Tell me about what you admire about Toni Morrison's work and why right. do you believe that she is a philosopher? Right. Well, I mean, she says to us, I mean, she is one of these literary figures who I think is sort of self-consciously um, philosophical. So she, I mean, she wrote, I forget where she wrote this in one of her nonfiction works. She was explaining that if any of her work is, is not about the community, then she has failed. If, if any of her work doesn't contribute to you know, the understanding of the black experience, our own experience. And she's writing, I think, for a, a black readership, primarily. Um, and, she, and she's saying, like, you know, this is like she's trying to understand her own experience, the experience of her community, and trying to um, to make sense of it, to, 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 um, to assuage it, to provide vocabulary and understanding and context and, and community through these texts. And so I think she's deliberately trying. So, I mean, like, you know, her first novel, I mean, I mean, she's written so many. Her first novel, The Bluest Eye, you know, this tragic experience of this little black girl who wants blue eyes. And just like, you know, just like imagining sort of the self, the self-hatred even to think that her own, in order for her to be beautiful, her, her own eyes need to be changed, like in ways that are impossible. I mean, like just the tragedy of that, and that's an experience that you know women have in general, and then the black women also. I mean, there's like a the, the burden of the of of, resi- of of being beautiful against a white standard of beauty. You know, is sort of, sort of you know it's it's tragic, and that's sort of like the, that's the story of of um, the bluest eye, um, and 
I mean, and all of, I think, Toni Morrison's novels engage aspects of the black experience in their contradictory aspects. Like, sometimes critical, sometimes, you know, pra- you know, praising them, you know, but and not just shining a light on them and saying, here is what it means to be black. No, 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 no. Like, I think Toni Morrison is, like, her, her stories, like, in telling this particular story and then like, the way that they resolve and like what it means, like who the characters are. I mean, I, I, I think she's, she's making arguments. She's, she's making proposals for how we should think about ourselves and how we should um, engage races and how we should develop communities and even sort of the kinds of characters she makes, you know, she's like, how we should, how we should be ourselves. You know, these are in a lot of ways, the protagonists become exemplars or, you know, heroes are exemplars and the antagonists, of course, are then, you know, um, ways not to be, you know, so the, in, 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 my, in some ways these are, you know, ethical problems also. So, I mean, but Toni Morrison is doing this deliberately, self-consciously, and she does this in every one of her works. And I mean, and she, she says as much in her nonfiction also. Now, I want to go back to something you said. You said that she is making arguments. Now, usually... <laughs> Specifically in philosophy, you know, we, we learn how to make certain kinds of arguments. And we don't really look at, at fiction writers as making arguments. So I, right. I want to kind of, for you to explain how that happens and how as, as readers of literature, we can kind of, of see those arguments in the making. Right, yeah. Well, so there are a number of ways that I think that, that happens in literature. I mean, so literature, of course, like in order to tell a story, you know, it requires doing something. It requires the reader suspending disbelief. So, I mean, they're telling a work that's explicitly fiction, but the reader has to say, well, maybe this could happen, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of, I think that we could think of there's sort of an implicit argument that, that, that the author must make um, for the reader to suspend disbelief successfully. So, um, um, so for, you know, like science fiction, for example, I mean, think, or, you know, like superhero drop narrative. So like Superman, right? Think mm-hmm. Superman, for example, right? Um, people can't fly and, and, you know, Krypton is not a real place. But if, if, um, we say that, but if Krypton did exist, right? And, you know, um, and a person came to the, came to Earth, like maybe this is what that person's like. Experience would be like, you know, if the gravity was different and so on, you know, so sort of we could, we, we could extract like a set of deductions that start from our basic laws of physics and, they, and you know, and say, well, this is what, prob- what would, what things, would, what the world would have to be like for someone to be able to fly in our world, you know, on Earth or something like that. And I think that that happens also when we look at um, just characters who are very much like ourselves. So not so dramatically different as, you know, science fiction or fantasy. But we think, well, here's an interaction that people are having. And then we say, well, is this a believable interaction? Is this person realistic? Is that actually how they would, how someone in a situation might behave? And they're sort of, you know, we sort of test stories against our own experience all the time. Again, even if they're fictional, we test them against what we think of as like what we imagine to be something like reality. And I think that there's sort of the good, the good story, the good novelists um, makes that case persuasively. So that's like one way that I think the arguments appear. But then they're also, you know, if they make certain kinds of choices that we wouldn't make, I mean, sometimes, um, or if they, um, or if um, 
then there's sort of an argument that maybe this is a better choice, you know? That's uh, it's just like to the, to, the, to the degree to which it's different from our own choices, and maybe we can understand the reasoning given the story or given the context of this particular character, then we can say, well, maybe that's perhaps an argument also. Other ways I think arguments occur or are presented in the stories are, um, I mean, that someone is even a, a hero at all. So we think, you know, if it's like a moral argument or a political argument, you know, is this person actually, you know, the protagonist of this story in a, in a meaningful way that I identify with? I think that's sort of an implicit argument. Then, of course, there are like the, 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 the most crude way it occurs is literally people have debates in novels, you know, and they sort of, you know, like I think like in, in Plato, for example, you know, you have literally Socrates debating with his interlocutors. And that's sort of like, I think, the, most, the crudest way that that arguments appear in stories. Now, there are philosophers who have written novels, right? Uh, Sartre, yes. and also mm -hmm. when we talk about, you know, kind of black philosophers, W.B. Du Bois has written novels, trilogy. What can you do, what can you do in a novel, philosophically, that you mm -hmm. can't do in essay form? Well, I think most of the things that, no that novels do, essay forms can also do, but, have, but they haven't done. So things that novels do really well that that I think essayists should draw more upon is um, novelists um, are extremely aware of who is speaking and who they're speaking to. And the narrator is addressing someone, like a narratee of sorts. And um, essayists traditionally have not, they, some, of the, some of the good ones, they do that. They, they are, they, they're keenly aware of their voice and who this sort of speaker of this essay is, who is sort of like a narrator, they're keenly aware of that, and they're addressing a particular audience. And, uh, and I think those are the, the more effective essays. And novelists always do that. They must do that. It's just, you know, it's, a, like the, the, it's just the way the, the, for, the form demands it. But there are things that I think that, um, that novels um, do that maybe essays can try to do but won't be able to as well. And part one of those is in thinking about things like luck and chance and also contradiction and thinking about, you know, thinking about um, the particularity of our experiences, the things that seem to resist abstraction and logical form formalization that are still philosophically relevant questions. So, you know, um, if you want to have a philosophical um, inquiry about hunger or, uh, or, um, or about humor or about love, you know, which I, or about loyalty, I mean, or about just our emotions in general, um, which are things that are so experiential. Um, essays can, can talk about those in general, but if you don't ground it in a setting and a time and even give it, you know, put the ground those even in a body, like the, which is a character, then the, the frequently essays will seem empty. And, uh, and then, and then sometimes when we're thinking about problems that seem to just be paradoxical or contradictory, you know, um, stories can hold those next to each other without it just collapsing and being sort of like a fault of reason. And it sort of can, you know, essays can frequently use um, non-logical tools in addition to logic and, and reason um, and sort of have a more holistic um experience of thinking things through. So I think that's something that, that literary form may have an advantage over 
you know, it dep again, it depends on the question that you're trying to engage, which which form might be more appropriate. But I think, you know, in some, some, when you're thinking about things that are particular in that way, um, novels have an advantage. But, but yeah, Du Bois uh, with the, the Negro problem, you know, think just telling a story about what it's like to be a black person through Reconstruction and the early part of the 20th century. I mean, and that's something that you know. How do you how do you how do you think that through without the history? You know, I think that's actually impossible. You know, it uh, it and it seems. Empty. You are stranded on an island and only have one book. What is it, and why? Right. Yeah, this is a tough question. Yeah, I mean, I'm on I'm on Death's Island. It's got a, I, I want it to be a long book, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, but I also want it to be really good, right? Um, uh, so I mean, uh, one of the books that I'm, you know that comes to mind is you know Proust's Recherche, you know, In Search of Lost Time, which is you know it's like you know three thousand pages continuous novel of just like which has philosophical insights and beautiful poetry. But then also just some of my favorites, you know, some of my favorite stories are, um, um, uh, you know, Ralph Allison's Visible Man, or even something more um, historical, like, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, these are, you know, that's one story. I mean, I read that and, like, as a teenager, it's just always, always returning that and satisfying. And, you know, these are, you know, all narrative works, and, but then also, I think, rich philosophically also. So I cheated. I gave you three. Yes, you did. <laughs> Short stories, novels, or trilogies? Oh, uh, <laughs> mm, when, when you're not stranded it, on an island. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, mm, I like them all for different reasons. I suppose novels. I guess novels. I'll take novels. I mean, the reason I like short stories are, you know, um, talk about generally situations and you know events where you know you can't really have character development in a short story just because of the space restraints but then so i think i guess novels i think are my favorite you know um and trilogies are just you know a longer novel in my mind um but of course but a more difficult one to pull off sometimes you know it's, the scale gets unwieldy so i guess the novel sort of intermediate space you have character development you still have of course action um yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> okay. What is what is one philosophical work whose ideas you would want captured in a literary piece? You know, the the, the novel that I was hope that I tried to write <laughs> way back when, which I think I'll uh, I hope still hope to return to. I was really interested in the interface between sort of mythology and science. Okay. And uh, basically, like di different accounts of the world, right? So. I mean, so we have you know we have this idea of you know science explains the world to us, and then we come up up to a sort of a limit where beyond that point, science sort of hasn't yet given us answers, or maybe it can't give us answers beyond a certain point. And the way that we make sense of of our experience beyond what is scientifically explainable, we then draw upon mythology, I think, frequently, and and sometimes though, but then but, so. We think of well, what happens if we can never get beyond a certain point in terms of our scientific explanation? You know, are these mythological accounts true? And sometimes they actually do help us. You know, they do they do help us frequently. They guide us and they 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 function as truth. 
and I and I don't I don't want to say I don't mean to qualify in that way to say they aren't true, but um um because I think that maybe even there was certain there's a certain degree where science is a kind of mythology as well. Um, so I I wanted to explore that in a story, like um, to think you know so if some scientific question and look at well how do we make sense of um, the world beyond it. And then, like, what about the possibility that it is fantastic, that, that, that the space beyond that is sort of maybe even a scientific world that, in, according to our current scientific paradigm, would just be magical? In which case, it wouldn't, the mythology sometimes gets close to the mark, you know? So, like, what about, you know, like the experience of sort of, you know, um, you know, um, maybe like the powers of our mind, so like telepathy or like telekinesis or like, you know, these things are like, you know, something bad happens across the world and somebody feels it. Like, how do we make sense of those kinds of strange um, connect moments of connectedness that we think don't make sense, right? And so maybe these are just, um, maybe it isn't just a coincidence. Maybe there is something about our, our bodies that makes us more receptive to each other in ways that we haven't been able to measure or catalog yet. And uh, that's sort of a, you know, that's sort of, you know, those, that kind of question is, is, has been engaged in the popular imagination, you know, with um, the way that we think of, you know, taking science beyond what science is today, you know, but I think that there's, um, there's another way to look at that question in literature, which, which isn't just science is, is even, has, has expanded its purview even more, but sort of we think about knowledge differently and that or we think about like a place for mythology more robustly. So speaking of science, so I was on Facebook <laughs> recently and I saw a picture and you did not post this picture. You were tagged in this picture. So that just goes to show how humble you are. And it was a picture of you, several other people and Neil deGrasse Tyson. When I saw the picture, I was, first of all, extremely jealous. So it just goes to show the issues that I have in my own life, right? So <laughs> you met Neil deGrasse Tyson. I want to know what that experience was like. And I want to know, did you squash or did you at least discuss his beef with philosophy with him? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we, it, was a, it was a great experience. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed interacting with him. Um, well, okay, so answer the, the second question first, right? Okay. Did we discuss philosophy and science? And yes, we did. As soon as he found out that I was a philosopher, he sort of pounced, you know, he sort of like asked me, all right, you know, like, well, you know, what is truth? And, you know, it does, is our philosophers doing anything worthwhile? And, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a really good, it's a good question. Like, should, should philosophers just seed the epistemological, should we just like get, you know, leave the pursuit of knowledge to scientists was sort of a short question, right? Okay. And, um, and, you know, we had, I think we had a really good discussion where I was trying to, defend that there are certain kinds of truths that science maybe can inform, you know, truths in, in quotes, perhaps, you know, because not, not in the sense of being facts, but things that would guide us and things that we should believe, right? Um, like certain kinds of truths that science can inform, but wouldn't sound able to resolve. And like the easy um, place to point to places where science is limited is certainly ethics, you know, where ethics can, science can only take us so far. I mean, um, one example, like, so we think, uh, well, one example is even like, what questions should we ask of science? You know, and those are sort of, those are philosophical questions, yeah, I think. Yeah. What, 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 
what what ways, what kind of scientific questions are relevant for ethical decisions? You know, are relevant in the courtroom? How do those inform those? And those seem to be those those seem to be you know, science can't answer those questions. You know, they can. We can, we can ask how to do something and science will tell us, but, but what should we do, you know, and why should we do it aren't necessarily questions that science can answer. Um, yeah, so that, so I think we had a, you know, I think it was a good discussion. What is the most powerful and philosophical line you've ever read in a novel? The beauty of the line, I think, contributes so much to even what it says and how we experience it. Um, yeah, so I mean, well, this is, this is actually an easy question for me. <laughs> okay. Um, there are many lines that I think are powerful and beautiful, but one of them is from Toni Morrison um, in The Bluest Eye, and, you know, uh, I've used this in epigraph many times, but, so, like, The, the, the Bluest Eye opens with sort of this short um, vignette, which basically um, foreshadows the entire story, and, um, you know, it's spoken from the perspective of the, the, the two little girls who are narrating it, and they're talking, and uh, anyway, I'll just get to the line, but basically, they, they're trying to make sense of the tragedy of Pacola, who's the, the tragic character who, you know, wants blue eyes. And they end the vignette before the story begins. They're saying, there's really nothing more to say except why. But since why is difficult to handle, one must take refuge in how. And the first time I read that, I was just like, wow, you know, um, I think that has a lot to do, that says, you know, sort of like what, what part, parts of the contributions of literature to philosophy or what philosophy might be if it became more literary and are captured in that line also. Um, just sometimes, like the why is, the, is, it's not even a question that we can, that we know how to attend to yet, you know, or, uh, and uh, so the, the experience, the net, the narrative experience of thinking it through, which is a narrative experience, is um, ultimately more fruitful than um, just the straight answer of why, you know, like the how, the how did this happen? You know, because sometimes the, the question that emerges is a question that requires like a therapeutic, like a mourning process, you know, like a, particularly when you think about like the, the tragic questions that emerge out of the black experience. Like these are quite, like we ask, you know, why did Trayvon get shot? You know, that's, that's, I mean, that's a question we could answer, but in some ways it's the wrong question because part of the question is, well, is, is so, so much of it is wrapped up in how we feel about it. How do we get past it and how we change? And really the how question is the only productive way or the, the, the only productive way to engage that question now. And then maybe why comes so much later or at the very end of that process. So, yeah, I mean, so, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, why, why is so difficult to handle? So sometimes we, we must take refuge in how. Amir, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure, Maisha. Thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.